The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the most nutritious hour of business talk all week. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. Your host and moderator is Bonnie D. Graham. You'll hear from the innovators who have learned to use game-changing technologies to shake up the status quo and help move today's businesses in new directions. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, oh, I know you're in the right place. You know you're in the right place. It's always true. So let's start off with a quote. I found a quote for today's topic. I'm going to tease you a little bit from the renowned fighter who left us earlier this year, Muhammad Ali, born Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. in 1942. He quoted, uh, quoting him, among many things he said that are very memorable, impossible is not a fact, it is an opinion. Let me just let that sit there for a second. Let's talk about what's been happening in the world. A unique clustering of inventions in the century after the U.S. Civil War. Those of you around the world not familiar, look it up, U.S. Civil War. That's our reference point today. It greatly improved the American standard of living and the European standard of living. We're going to talk to that in reference of human well-being, you and me and our ancestors and our future progeny, more than any period before or after. So this was revolutionary evolutionary in so many ways. We saw advances in everything from food, what it was, how it was delivered, to energy, to communications, to work, to health, business, everything. Let's fast forward from those olden days to right now. We're at the tail end of 2016. We are seeing an innovation explosion. Yes, we are. Some people call it future shock. We'll have a quote from the author of that book in a few minutes. And some call it templosion, a.k.a. a term coined by E.D. Weiner in the recent years. It's an innovation explosion that's happening all around us, and it's very fast, and it's very heavy duty. So will it have a similarly positive impact on all of us? Come on, you know what we're living through. Everything is changing by the second, basically. But we won't only look at the positive parts. We're going to look at the unintended consequences Uh Uh-oh. So we have a wonderful panel calling in from all over the world, and I can't wait to introduce them to you. I'm just going to tell you who they are first, and then I'll introduce them, as always, with their opening quotes. First up, we're welcoming back uh, one of our favorite futurists. He's on so many times. It's Frank Diana. He's a principal in the future of business at TCS. That's Tata Consultancy Services. Frank tells me he's calling in from New Jersey, so I'm going to wave out the window here in Long Island, and I think Frank might be able to see me over the bridge there. Joining us, our second guest is Gerd Leonhard, L-E-O-N-H-A-R-D. He is a futurist extraordinaire. He works all over the world. He's got thousands of clients and lectures and speaking engagements. He's calling us from 
Italy today from Rome in an airport. So we're going to maybe hear some flight announcements in the background. The future is here. We don't know where we'll be transported via Girdley and our cell phone today. And rounding out the panel, another one of our regulars here on Game Changers. It's Timo Elliott, SAP Innovation Evangelist and Futurist. And wow, if that doesn't impress you, stay tuned because we're going to hear so much great information. So let's get started. Frank Diana has sent me a quote from Henry Ford, American industrialist, founder of, oh, you know, the Ford Motor Company, and sponsor of the development of the assembly line technique of mass production, talk about a major change. Here's the quote. I cannot discover that anyone knows enough about anything on this earth definitely to say what is and what is not possible. Frank, welcome. How have you been? I've been great. Thanks again for having me. We are always delighted, Frank. And tell me something. Are you a big fan of Henry Ford? Is he still popular in terms of uh, sayings? And tell me how you picked his quote for today. I'm a big fan of anybody that lived in that era because uh, many economists uh, believe that that was probably the most innovative era of our time. And so Henry Ford being at the center of that. And and I do believe the quote is appropriate for this this session because it speaks to the notion of what's possible and what's not possible. A very topical item, if you will, in the world today. And and a lot of pessimists and optimists lining up on either side of that discussion. So I think in the context of the standard of living, our well-being going forward, it's a great quote because what what can we do, what should we do, all those things that are our discussion points today. Thank you, Frank. And I want to give a reference point here. Those of you not remembering or knowing or having studied the U.S. Civil War, it was 1861 to 1865, way, way long ago. And uh, Frank, how did you like how I tied in the Muhammad Ali quote, impossible is not a fact, it's an opinion. Works well, yes? Yeah, it works Thank you. Great, great quote. I tried. So we've tied Henry Ford and Cassius Clay together. I think that was <laughs> maybe a short stroke of genius on my part. So, Frank, welcome back. We have a lot to hear from you. And now let's welcome a gentleman you invited to join the party today. So happy to meet him. It's Gerd Leonhard, the futurist. And Gerd has sent us a quote from Alvin Toffler, the author of Future Shock. Uh, Toffler was considered a futurist in 1970. Can you count how many years ago? That's 30 plus 16, 46, almost a half a century ago. He wrote Future Shock. He defined the term as a psychological state of individuals and entire societies. He came up with a very short definition, too much change in too short a period of time. I'll just leave it there. Here is the quote Gerd has selected from Mr. Toffler. In dealing with the future, it is far more important to be imaginative than to be right. Gerd Leonhardt, welcome to Game Changers. How are you? I'm great. Thanks very much. Uh, just going through an announcement here at the airport, but otherwise... That's okay. Uh, That's okay. We're live. You're coming to us from all over the world, and we're thrilled to have you. So, Gerd, tell, talk to me a little bit about Alvin Toffler, Future Shock, and how you picked this quote for our topic today. Well, Alvin was one of the most prescient futurists uh, that you'll, you'll ever meet virtually, so to speak. He was a great influence on my work and on pretty much Elton's work, and just kind of uh, reading the sign of the times and then seeing ahead much, much further than most people did. Uh, and, and this quote is actually because it's so old, you know, I keep using it with my speeches and people are now the fact it's probably more important to be imaginative than have all the facts because the facts are constantly changing. Uh, and we always have to make up what we do as the next step, as we can see now with uh, two or three major things that have happened, the Brexit and the Trump election, that, that just absolutely nobody even thought was going to be likely to happen, right? And so imagination and exponential thinking, which goes with imagination, uh, is crucial. 
Very, very crucial. Sure. Ed, I'm, think, I'm thinking, Gerd, that we could almost rename the show, and I haven't given the title of the episode yet, but we could almost call this Advice to Entrepreneurs on the Brink of Discovering Something that Everybody Said Was Impossible. Do you think we could use it that way? We could, but, you know, I think this is really a big message for incumbents for, for, for existing companies as well. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't, if you don't believe that uh, exponential thinking is required, that imagination is required, you'll probably find yourself stuck in the linear thinking, which is detrimental to pretty much any company or, or person, for that matter. Yes. Yes, disruption. I, I have a, a side note to read to you, Gerd. In my research on Alvin Toffler and Future Shock, I came across a quote from a gentleman named Neil Postman, P-O-S-T-M-A-N, from his book Conscientious Objections. Are you familiar with him? Nope, not really, but... Okay, listen to this. I think you'll appreciate this. He writes on page 162 of his book, Sometime around the middle of 1963, my colleague Charles Weingartner and I delivered in tandem an address to the National Council of Teachers of English. In that address, we used the phrase future shock as a way of describing the social paralysis induced by rapid technological change. To my knowledge, Weingartner and I were the first people ever to use the phrase in a public forum. Of course, whether Weingartner nor I, neither Weingartner nor I had the brains to write a book called Future Shock, and all due credit goes to Alvin Toffler for having recognized a good phrase when one came along. What do you think of that? Interesting? Very interesting. I mean, of course, we, we do that all the time these days. You know, Frank and me, for example, are constantly ping-ponging off each other's riffs and memes. So it's, uh, this is basically what's happening now at lightning speed. You know, lots of stuff that we talk about uh, has been used in various places, and the memes are flying, and it's, it's a good way to, to share things. I, I agree, and that's what we're doing today. Thank you, Gerd, so much for joining us. And now I'm going to introduce our third panelist, Timo Elliott, SAP Innovation Evangelist. And rumor has it he's somewhere around the world in a place called Kenya. I think that's where he is, and he'll tell us in a moment. And Timo has sent me a quote from E.O. Wilson, full name Edward Osborne Wilson, born in June 1929, still with us, an American biologist, a researcher in things I can't even pronounce, a theorist, a naturalist, and an author. You I might say E.O. Wilson is kind of a busy guy. Uh, he is known for his scientific career and his role as the father of sociobiology and the father of biodiversity. Very, very interesting and all kinds of references I'm not going to bother you with. Here's the quote Timo has selected from E.O. Wilson. The real problem of humanity is that we have paleolithic emotions medieval institutions, and godlike technology, and it is terrifically dangerous. Wow. Timo Elliott, welcome back. How have you been? I'm great. Thank you, Bonnie. Thanks for joining us. I'm so talk going... to me. Are you a big big fan of, of uh, Mr. Wilson? I am indeed, and um, I am indeed calling from uh, Kenya. I'm in a beachfront hotel in Mombasa for a technology event here tomorrow, and uh, you have to stay on your toes because you never know the power might go out. It's gone out a few times today. So if I cut off the mid-sentence, you know what's happened. And we will call you back, I promise, because you're valuable to us. Talk to me about E.O. Wilson, father of sociobiology. I didn't even know there was such a thing as sociobiology. Why is he important to this discussion, Timo? So he's one of these great people that has done a lot of the thinking in advance of the situation we find ourselves in today. 
We've had this incredible, powerful technology. And here's somebody who's actually been thinking about how to unite the sciences with humanity for many, many years. And so he's already gone through some of the dilemmas that I hope we'll talk about in the rest of the show. I'm sure we will. Thank you very much. So tell me, what time of day or evening is it where you are, and what's the weather? I have to know. It's uh, 7 o'clock at night. The sun just went down, and um, it's hot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, lucky you. Beachfront and all. We're, we're feeling very sorry for you right now, Timo. Okay, so let's circle back to Frank Diane, and this is the part of the show. Frank and Timo know, and this is new for Gerd. He's a first-time panelist on Game Changers Radio. We get a little up close and personal. I ask you, what's your favorite drink or what are you drinking right now to power you during the show? So Frank Diana in New Jersey, I know it's pluing, as my late mother-in-law Marjorie Bell Clark Graham used to say, French for raining. It's kind of gloomy out. What are you drinking today to power up that, that mindset of a futurist, Frank? You know, I'm, I'm running out of innovative things to drink. You see what I did? You see what I did there? <laughs> so I got it. I'm, I got I'm it. actually drinking uh, water. Believe it or not. And tell me, is it warmer? Is it cold? Is it hot? Is it in a bottle? Is it in a glass? Is it is it some kind of pure thing? Does it have energy and vitamins and amazing brain power in it, or is it just tap water? Tell me more. No, just tap water in a bottle. Nothing innovative about it at all. Okay, and that powers you, or at least it keeps you keeps your whistle wet while you're talking, yes? Correct, correct, Amundo. Correct, Amundo. Oh, we got all kinds of flavors here. Thank you very <laughs> much. And and you know uh, I'm a lover of tap water as well, and I'll tell you in a minute. Gerd Leonhard, you are in Rome. Tell us, what time is it? What's the weather also, and what are you drinking? Gerd is in the airport. I'm just, just now switching to, um, to water as well because I'm going to be flying back to Zurich, and, I, and it's, it's pretty freezing, though, which is unusual. Really? Yeah, it's pretty cold. Wow. And just water. Well, let's let's go a little farther than that. If you were someplace not in an airport, what would you be drinking? What powers that mind of the futurist who travels and speaks all over the world? I know you're a star speaker, and we're so happy to have you today. Gerd, what's your favorite drink that really gets you going or really makes you happy? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a coffee guy, of course. You know, like, like most people, former musicians like to drink coffee, but I'm also very, I'm, I'm a connoisseur of red wine, I would say. I really like Italian wine, so I would probably be drinking Italian wine and uh, occasionally maybe even have a pot of, of a cigar, if you mind, from, uh, from shooting far. Thank you very much. We're getting a lot of background noise. I'm going to move over to Timo. Timo, what are you drinking? Yeah. So, right after the show, I am heading for the bar to have the number one Kenyan cocktail. It's called a Dawa, and it's a mixture of honey, lime, sugar, ice, and vodka. And I'm told it's the perfect thing to have as a sundowner after a hard day on safari. Wow. Are you going to be on safari anytime soon, in addition to your business no. reason for being there? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to be in the conference room. I'm on the plane back home. <laughs> I see. Well, that's, you know what? Business is like a safari today in a way, isn't it, Timo? Really, what you're doing, you're searching and you're looking and you're, <laughs> I wouldn't say you're trying to shoot anything or take anything captive, but certainly it's an adventure, right? And I, right, and I will have tried the cocktail at least. That's almost the same thing as going on safari, right? Uh, well, you'll let us know after you have a sip, okay? You, you, 
you'll report in. I appreciate that. As Timo and Frank know and Gerd will know now, they don't let me anywhere near caffeine on radio show days. So all I'm drinking is a cup of cool, clear water, and I have a yellow straw, hoping and praying for the sunshine to come back. It's been very gloomy here in New York, but the sun will eventually come out. We are, my goodness, what's today, November 30th? We are uh, less than 24 hours away from the start of December, going toward the finish of a very interesting year, and that brings us to our topic. We're talking about the innovation explosion, replicating a special century, and we're referencing all the way back to the years after the U.S. Civil War, 
So, again, going back to that period after the Civil War and all of the great impacts that society realized through innovation, the real question, and a book that he wrote really focuses on this question, is can we replicate that century through the innovations of our day? Can we bring global standard of living to parity in terms of the emerging economies versus the developed economies? And can we actually improve the standard of living in the developed world like the U.S. and in Europe? And interestingly, if you, if you look at that statement, he, he stresses several of the headwinds that he believes will limit our ability to improve our standard of living. Matter of fact, he believes that if you look at the middle class and what's happening to the middle class in the developed world, that we might actually be going in a different direction. So the question, the one that, that I've been trying to probe on, is um, we, it's good to be innovative, and, and nobody would argue that we're in a very innovative time. But can that innovation drive societal good, improve our standard of living, or are there a number of things like inequality, et cetera, that are, that are consequences that will inhibit our, our growth and our path? I think it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating discussion, and you find sort of a polarized set of opinions here, much like our political climate, uh, where you've got folks that are entrenched in one camp or the other. And so it just makes for a very interesting discussion. And I know um, Gerd specifically focuses here in his recent book, Technology Versus Humanity, and really dives in very deeply on some of these topics. Thank you very much. Good introduction to that one. Gerd Leonhardt, I'm going to ask you to comment on what Frank just talked to us about, please. Yeah, thanks, Frank, for the, for the, uh, for the hint there. Um, well, basically, I think what's happening is that we see that uh, technology gave a huge boost to society and the economy for a long time. But now what's happening is that productivity is increasing, uh, but wages and jobs are not decreasing. And now we see global frustration with this kind of idea of technology becoming the sort of salvation to all of us in economic terms. And it turns out, in fact, that technology is uh, not the great equalizer. Uh, and it's not mm-hmm. just creating opportunities, but also taking jobs away. And I think it's extremely likely that we're, we're going to see wide rampant under technological unemployment even though we'll see many good other things from it, like you know, solving diseases and, and, and beating global, global warming and things like that. So many positive things. But in the end, I think the, uh, the, uh, the fact that we have technology now changing everything around us means that in roughly 20 years, I think we're at the end of this economic paradigm of uh, profit and growth and consumption that we've used so far. Uh, you know, as Bobby Kennedy said in the 60s, uh, GDP measures everything but that which matters. Um, and, and now we're at the point where we can say technology has, has helped everything except that which matters. Thank you, Gerd. Very interesting. We did hear everything. Thank you. Timo, love to get your point of view on what we're discussing. Please join us. I, I think it's important to take a step back and look at this on a global level, though, because we've had um, some level of perception of stagnation in the, in the developed Western world. But if you look at the developing world, the last 20 years has been nothing short of a miracle. Uh, China has managed to bring literally billions of people out of uh, poverty, and it's almost directly due to technology. The, the Chinese people can be able to use these uh, flexible manufacturing techniques. It would have been much harder a few decades ago. The same thing in India. Um, the massive outsourcing business that's been developed over the last 20 years has contributed to millions of jobs across the subcontinent. And here in Africa, we've also had 
some um, big successes. And in fact, a lot of investment from India and uh, China. As I came down the road yesterday, there's lots of uh, Chinese signs of all the work going on here. So it's, uh, it's important that we realize that while the part of the effective technology has been leveling the playing field, and so a lot of the benefits of these technologies haven't gone directly to us, but on a global level, I think that the uh, improvements have been absolutely massive. Thank you very much, Timo. Frank, I'm going to let you wrap this one up, tie it up with a red bow or any color bow you want for the holidays in regard to what your co-panelists just shared with us. Uh, uh, so at, a, at the highest of levels, I, I agree with Timo in the context of what technology has enabled globally and clearly the benefits to society in the last 30 years have been significant in places like India and China. However, if you, think, if you fast forward and you look at what automation is likely to do to, to factory jobs in China, what automation and other things are already doing to labor arbitrage that, that benefit India. And you think about what might happen to the middle class in those places as that plays out, it, it might be on an exponential timeline as opposed to the timeline we, we're seeing, right? So middle class improvements in those places could be diminished by technology. It goes back to Gerd's point. I think technological unemployment is not just a U.S.-European thing. Thank you very much, Frank. Good opening topic. And now, Gerd, Leonhard, I'm looking at your notes. A lot of interesting information here. I'm going to read a couple of statements that jump out at me, Gerd, and then I'd ask you to pull them together and give us your point of view. So first of all, you say embrace technology, but don't become it. That's one. Number two, you say technology is exponential, but humans are linear and we should remain so. That's two. And the third one I liked is technology does not have ethics but our society depends on them. Just because we can does not mean we should. And then you add Silicon Valley in China should not become mission control for humanity. Gerd, why don't you tie this all up for us? Very interesting statements, and I know our listeners would love to know your point of view. Yeah, that was a very good collection of the best of, so to speak. Well, <laughs> Thank you. I, 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 uh, I like the sentence of technology, uh, embracing technology, because we can't really do anything else. We don't have an option to crawl under a rock and go backwards and not mm -hmm. do it, so to speak, right? That's just not realistic. Uh, even if you live in an Amish country or the, on top of the mountain in Switzerland, that's not going to happen. So, so what we need to do is to use a human purpose, which uh, means to further human flourishing, right? And how do humans flourish? Well, they don't flourish by replacing all the things that are human with machines or software. You know, they're, they're, as I like to say, there is no app for happiness. Um, there is no way of filling the, uh, the internal space with external feeds. Uh, and what we currently are seeing is that technology is becoming so powerful and so strong that we're, we're very much tempted to replace what we do, what people do, like communicating uh, and expressing feelings with technology. And it, it's, uh, it's a, a kind of an oxymoron in this that, that we're now more empowered than ever, but all we use it for is to talk to machines, you know. We build relationships with machines, and we figure out how to sell more advertising on the Internet. Um, and uh, in the end, it's basically the whole story of the book is the story of saying, well, if this is going to exponentially grow, and technology will say a thousand times as powerful in five years, with quantum computing, artificial intelligence, deep learning, you know, then we're going to have to fence, you know, in a way, create a protection agency for human things, which, after all, are inefficient. I mean, humanity is inefficient, we make mistakes, and, and there are people proposing that we should, because of that, get rid of the human factor and become machines, uh, or merge with the machines, like the singularity they call throughout 
you know, those movements, so to speak. And I think that's utterly wrong because it would make us very bad machines. It would not be, it would not be an upgrade, it would be a downgrade. Thank you very much. Very interesting. I want to get Timo Elliott's POV on all of the interesting things that Gerd just shared, and then we'll go around the table to Frank. Timo, what do you think? What do you, what do you think? <laughs> well, first, I, as a proud European, I am a big believer in uh, technology and the markets being at the service of society. So I think this is a little bit what Gerd was talking about. Uh, we have to make sure that we take into account the effects of, of technology on society. We have to do that explicitly, not just let it happen, but we have to realize these effects are happening. One of the reasons for the backlash against uh, technology and open trade has been because we've perhaps minimized the real disruption to people's lives. Now that we know that that backlash is happening, we should do a much more proactive job this time around with these latest technologies to stop those bad effects from happening. Thank you. Frank, Diana, let's get you in on this. What do you think? Yeah, I think the critical word is balance. Uh, we, we clearly need to explore and exploit the technologies that will advance society. So that the medical advances, the ability to have clear, clean running water in places that don't, all those things we clearly want to do. Uh, but at the same time, we have to we have to mitigate the risks of unintended consequences, and and how you do that in in a world where technology is running rampant, science and technology are running rampant. I think is the big question, and and ethics. You know, I think Gerd does a phenomenal job at really pushing with passion this notion of ethics and how do we insert ethics into the dialogue. To me, that's the critical question: How does ethics get inserted into the dialogue? Interesting. Uh, Gerd, you want to wrap this one up? I'd love to hear your thoughts on what Frank and Timo just shared on your topic. Yes, well, thanks very much. I, I think the, uh, the key part, again, is this concept of balance and ethics, because after all, humans are actually not zeros and ones. Uh, if you believe that humans are just fancy machines, then mm-hmm. by all means, you know, we're going to become machines, and that is the path, right? I don't believe that humans are just zeros and ones. I think there is things that we have to discover what we are. But in any case, I think that technology further us to be more human. That is the key topic. Uh, the purpose of technology is not itself. Right? Technology is not what we seek, but it's how we seek. Uh, and I think we have to keep that difference, <clears throat> because otherwise um, we're, we're very much tempted to become a tool ourselves, or rather, in that case, we become mm-hmm. a tool of the tools. <laughs> uh, and so I think this is really the compromise that we have to look for. So, I, you know, I love technology. I've worked with lots of technology companies. I think it's the key topic. You see the, uh, the big partnership on AI that recently was mm-hmm. announced by IBM and Microsoft. I think tech companies are starting to wake up to the fact that they are indeed changing our world, changing our humanity, changing our culture, and changing everything, including politics, as we just know, noticed, right? Uh, that has fantastic impact, you know, both good and bad, and, and you are responsible for what you create. Thank you, Gerd. Very interesting. I, I have a question. I'm just, before we go to Timo's topics, and we have a lot of time left, we still have almost a half hour, so we've got a, a lot more opportunity to dig into the statements that my guests sent me in advance. Frank, I, were you the one who mentioned just a few minutes ago that you, you can't hide from technology, that you can't run and you can't hide today? No, Somebody no, mentioned that. Was, that. that was Gerd. Was that 
Was that Gerd? Gerd, I, I just want to bring up a, a thought here. Um, we do many shows on Game Changers, and we have 23 different series. Uh, 15 of them, 13 of them were live this year so far. And we talk about the workplace on several of our series, and it, it's been brought up over and over again that the workplace now has five demographic cohorts, if you will, or generations working side by side, and the differences in learning and the differences in career growth and the differences in how people are part of this workforce, whether how they learn, how they grow. And it all goes back to, I believe, the source of they their relationship with technology, technology with a capital T. Have they been an early embracer? Are they the millennials or the even younger ones after them who didn't even cut their teeth on it? They knew technology and they knew digital in the womb, for goodness sake. And then we have the older generations and we have the boomers like me who some of us professionally like me embraced technology in, in our midlife 40s and 50s and it became part of what we did as a career. And then we have the older, older people who are hiding. They are under a rock. They don't want it. So my question to you is, does this willingness or lack thereof to embrace gadgets and digital and, and everything coming at you so fast, is this going to be a divider of who comes forward almost like a Darwinian thing? Who moves forward into these new eras of, of communications and society and culture and who gets left behind and says, nah, I really didn't want email. I didn't really want a cell phone. I don't care about Instagram. I don't care if they ping my phone when I go to a store or customer service. Just give me a nice clerk and let them take my money. Who cares about special deals pump, pumped into my iPhone? So what, what's your thought about the divide? Is it a divider rather than an equalizer still? I Actually, I think what is happening is that technology is becoming like air, like like uh, something that surrounds mm -hmm. us, it's invisible, right? I mean, we're going, we're going to be starting to talk to computers as if they were our friends, right? Uh, and and this is already happening. So you don't you don't need to know how to download an app and install it. You just speak, right? And in five years, we're going to be in a situation where technology is essentially like we take a breath and we have technology, right? And and, and so. That is going to evaporate all of those barriers. The only barrier, of course, access and how much you pay for that. And that will also get cheaper. So technology becomes like air. And in a way, we need it to live, so to speak. Right? And then the question is, what are we and what is technology when, when that happens? Um, so I think the question is actually, uh, that's a temporary issue in my view, is that, that we have this divide to people who can do it or have the money. Eventually, everybody will have the money because it's going to be so cheap, you know, cheaper than, than water, in fact. I mean, this, all you have to do is look at what happened to the music business. You know, what, music is now cheaper than, than the, the subway tickets. You know, all of the music you can listen to. <laughs> the same, oh, yes. The same, you know, same goes for Netflix and films and now Kindle and transportation and Uber and Dropbox and Cloud. And so we're moving into the, into the world of abundance. You know, as Peter Diamandis' book writes about. And what that means is that eventually uh, technology will be so abundant that we can't possibly imagine that, that we exist outside of it. Um, and that is the point of uh, what's called the singularity. That is the point of where we have to make a decision as to what we want to keep the human things, which are not technology, uh, which are basically 95% of what we do is not technology. Uh, but is they going to be fenced or, or protected? Are, are we going to have a humanity protection agency, like an HPA, you know? <laughs> like we have the EPA. Well, nobody likes the EPA, but I wouldn't say it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Gerd, for answering my question. Anybody else uh, wanna, want to uh, respond to me, Timo or Frank? Any comments? Hi. 
I think it is fascinating that technology is both a divider and a leveler. It's mm-hmm. uh, my daughter is 12, and when I watch her doing her homework and her team projects using the latest and greatest collaboration tools, it's true that I feel almost jealous because we don't quite have those same um, reactions inside our organizations. You know, I, she wanted some help on a on a document, so I said, "Oh, well, email it to me," and she just looked at me like I was crazy. Because, of course, I was supposed to go on Google, Google Docs, and then yes. as I typed, she could accept or reject my comments in real time um, from her computer. So she's absolutely using the latest technologies to do things in new ways. At the same time, I'm looking forward to these technologies because they're going to keep me active and uh, part of society for much longer than I would have been able to aspire to in the past. You know, by the time I can no longer drive, self-driving cars should be able to take over and I won't lose the mobility. So I think it really is a combination of both. I think it's a leveler for people who choose to take part and a divider if you just choose not to go that route. Thank you very much. Yes. Finally, just a thought to add on to that. If you you step it up at 40,000 foot level um, and you think about it in the context of inequality, uh, so who is it that can afford a driverless car in the future first? Mm -hmm. Who is it it that can afford rejuvenation technologies that allow them to live longer? So there's a real danger here that it becomes more of a divider as as these new innovative things come out but can only be afforded by, you know, the wealthy. Does the inequality issue get exacerbated as a result? Thank you very much all for thoughtful answers. I appreciate that, and thanks for indulging my question. And now I'm going to turn to some topics from Timo Elliott. Very interesting. Timo, we've covered some of the questions of the current innovation explosion. Will it improve the global standard of living? Let's talk about unintended consequences. You've got quite a few listed here. A little bit. Let's see if I have some favorites here. The global standard of living is going to go up, but how are those gains going to be distributed is crucial. I think we touched on that a little bit. Artificial intelligence will be a huge disruption to our societies. What will we do with people whose jobs are lost? You want to go there and take us into that realm, Timo? Sure. I'll tell you up front, it's going to be a little bit half-hearted because I'm just a massive Mm -hmm. optimist by nature. And I'm I'm having followed the history of science. we, every new technology has always been decried as a destroyer of jobs that's going to disrupt society. Um, there are some credible things about this latest generation that does seem to mean it's going to have an impact that's different from the past. But at the same time, I'm going to stay optimistic until we actually have proof of job losses because of these technologies. We, for the moment, it's still all potential. So I think we have to keep that in advance. That said... It's true that artificial intelligence has been, in particular, developing in leaps and bounds. Uh, For perhaps Mm -hmm. the first time in history, uh, experts in various fields are being surprised by just how quickly computers can do things. You know, they they thought it was going to take another 10 years for a computer to win at Go. Um, The ability for computers to tag and recognize images and faces better than human beings was a surprise to many researchers. So it's like the dominoes are falling faster and faster as computers get better at these individual tasks. You can start combining them until you do stuff that looks like magic. Um, And that is going to force a real rethink in a lot of uh, middle-class repetitive decision jobs. So 
You know, we, we, we know that there are no more auto workers anymore. They've been replaced by lights-out factories with robots. We're starting to worry that the same thing is going to happen to middle management. If your job involves repeatable, complex decisions, and that honestly describes the job of many lawyers and doctors, um, then your job is uh, at risk. Um, at the same time, there's a huge opportunity for these lawyers and doctors and to, to become cyborgs, to essentially mm-hmm. use the best of the human imagination and the ability to deal with the unexpected combined with the sheer algorithm churning through alternatives that computers have, have proved that they're so much better at. Thank you, Timo. Frank, Diana, let's circle around the table to you. What are your thoughts about people losing jobs? It's a big brouhaha now, especially in the United States for many, many political and other reasons. Uh, What's your thought about the role of technology in retraining and repurposing and finding new meaning? Or is it going to have to wait a generation to really take effect? What's your thought? You know, this is one of those uh, topics I mentioned earlier on where there's just a, a clear divide in how people think whether it's the, the individual that says we've been here before and every time we've been here we have found a way to create new jobs. And then there's mm-hmm. the other side that says we've never seen this before. And I, I tend toward that side for one specific reason, and that is I, I really believe that the kinds of jobs that will be created through this new science and technology innovation will be very high-skilled jobs. And I do not believe our education system is positioned to reskill, repurpose uh, us as a society it, to be able to take advantage of those new jobs. If, if we don't see a fundamental shift in how we educate and how we consider us all life, lifelong learners and use some of these new technologies like virtual reality and others to help us learn, I don't see how we get past this technological unemployment issue. And to Gerd's earlier point, I mean, it really starts to question, put in question what work is in 30 years and in that world is there societal unrest or is there a world of abundance where we're all very happy human beings? It's just a lot of questions, not a lot of answers. Very, very good point. A lot of questions and not a lot of answers. And the, the sub subtext to that might be not yet. I'm just going to add that one on. Gerd Leonhard, please join us. What are your thoughts? Technology, AI, disrupting the job landscape. What do you see? Well, there are three three points I have. One is that um, it's already quite clear that digital companies, companies who are digitally native, like internet startups and so-called unicorns, they already have 10x the productivity for each employee that they have, uh, and sometimes 20 or 30x. So the chances are that in five to 10 years, we'll have companies who are going to be as productive as a company like GE uh, with one hundredth of the employees. So Walmart will have you know, 20,000 employees, not 2 million. Uh, and that is entirely likely. Mm-hmm. That's, that's one thing. The other thing is that we will need to eventually say, well, you know, what is the big deal if we lose those routine jobs? The only problem that we have is income and inequality. So we may need to ha- address that on, on an income guarantee level, which we are discussing here in Europe, but for a different kind of uh, post-capitalist system, right? Because it's not a problem in itself if we don't have to do the monkey work, whatever you want to call it, right? the, 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 the work that's completely simplified and routine. You know, a job is a job, right? even mm-hmm. if it's a truck driver or, or a fast food. So, so then we have to have an automation tax, all these things that everybody hates because they're not capitalists. Um, and so we have, we'll have a huge shift in what I call post-capitalist thinking that relates to what uh, Jeremy Rifkin is talking about in his various mm-hmm. books. And I think that's all a good thing. It's just we, we will need to get away from this idea that, you know, every man needs to work 12 hours a day is to be productive, you know. 
that is that is just not going to be fruitful in 10, 20 years because we will not need to and we can't. And so it's really a change of paradigm that we have to also uh, distinguish between what we do for work and how we make a living. You know, we separate money and work. And uh, that is imminent. You know, that discussion is flaring up everywhere. Thank you, Gerd. I'm I'm going to circle back to Timo now. And Timo, there's a very explosive, speaking about innovation explosion, a very explosive statement at the bottom of the list you sent me. I'd like you to do your best to cover at least a couple of these, and then we'll see what Frank and Gerd have to say. You say cataclysms are always possible. Global warming gets out of control, question mark. Massive magnetic pulse knocks out power and fries our electronics, question mark. Asteroid, question mark. Seismic event, question mark. Are you a Debbie Downer, or are you just uh, pontificating on the possibilities here? What's your thought, Timo? Well, I I don't know about you, but I sometimes think, uh, just daydream about going back in time and just imagining myself suddenly popping up in the 16th century. And then I quickly, I, I automatically assume that my advanced knowledge from the 21st century would would enable me to do all these amazing things. And then I think about what I could actually do. My, and my knowledge is incredibly limited because it's built on this incredible infrastructure that uh, is modern technology. As an individual, I could do almost nothing in the 16th century. I could maybe try and improve some of the lenses a little bit, um, but I, I certainly wouldn't be able to give them much of a massive leap forward. And... So as a corollary to that is what happens if something bad goes wrong, something bad happens, right? The asteroid hitting the Earth is a statistical possibility, unlikely, but it's possible. It would only take one big event like that to take out big chunks of our infrastructure. And let's face it, most of us can't survive without our iPhone, let alone um, electricity and Internet connections and global banking. Um, <laughs> it's just it's just an interesting thought experiment. Very, very interesting. And speaking of thought experiments, let's see what Frank Diana thinks about that thought experiment. Frank, have you ever daydreamed, as Timo has, about going back to a previous century and through the lens of who you are today and seeing what might have been done? <laughs> Not can't say that I have. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but but the the point around. And when, when I have these conversations in, in forums, uh, the notion of the, the downside, and we, we've talked unintended consequences, but a lot of times people will talk about events like, like terroristic activities or cyber warfare or, or the asteroid or global warming, any of those things come up. And, and will those things happen uh, before any of this comes to realization? All the things we're talking about now, some event like that occurs and, and really kind of just short circuits all of this. And, and of course, any of those things are possible. Uh, depressing but possible. Depressing but possible. Okay, get a little humanity in there alongside of technology. Gerd Leonhard, what do you think? What about these cataclysms? What are you seeing on the landscape of your futurist lens? Well, I'm, I'm also pretty much an optimist. I, I do think that you know uh, people and companies and governments only only change for two reasons, and that is what I like to call pain and love. So basically, uh, you have pain, you change, and then you fall in love with something, and you also change. You don't change before that, and I think we're going to need to experience some pain as far as, for example, uh, large exploitation of other bases or 100 million DNA being stolen and those kind of things. I think we're going to see those things. I just hope they don't get to be too much like Fukushima on a large scale, 
Um, so I think we're going, to, we're going to experience those incidents, and then we're going to think about how we want to limit what we're doing or if we want to limit what we're doing. We just need to be careful not to create a black hole or uh, uh, do some geoengineering that is going to have permanent damage to all of us. But I'm an optimist in this. I think we're, we're pretty early still in this process. And the more we discuss it and the more we talk about it, then I think we can, we can find sort of a, an approach that is basically like a, a global thinking about how we're going to proceed with this really, really powerful technology. Thank you very much. Uh, I want to circle to something you said in your notes, Gerd. We have about three, four minutes until we go to our official crystal ball predictions round. Uh, here's an interesting topic. I'm not sure if you covered it, but I'd love to get your point of view. You say efficiency should never become more important than humanity because not everything that can be automated should be. And here's the kicker that I love. You say, and happiness cannot be automated. Are we looking at a new definition of happiness, Gerd? You know, what was that old phrase about uh, supposedly success equals he who dies with the most toys? I don't know. <laughs> Something like that. Happiness. How do we define happiness in this age of innovation and disruption and templosion and future shock? Every day is a future shock from the day before. How, how is happiness defined in your world as a futurist? Well, I, I, I define happiness basically in the old Greek tradition of saying there's two types of being happy. One is hedonic, which is, uh, you know, momentary. So you get mm-hmm. a Facebook like you feel happy for about four and a half seconds. Uh, you buy a new iPhone, you feel happy for three days. And that's right. hedonic. Oh, that's still not bad. That's not a bad thing. Not bad. But, but if you want what's called eudaimonia, which is the Greek word for deep happiness, that is contentment, for example, that is feeling like uh, you're making a difference of having a purpose, uh, that is not something that technology can give us. You know, technology creates abundance on the outside, but scarcity on the inside. Uh, or sometimes I like to say it's more like uh, bicycles for the mind and bullets for the soul. It is not going to make us happy per se, right? Because technology is a tool. Why would we expect the tool to make you happy? Is a carpenter happy with a hammer? You know, he built something with a hammer, and that's, that's what makes him happy. Right? And, and so there, there's a fundamental difference here that we shouldn't confuse, is that we, we, we don't want to use technology as our purpose. And that is what defines happiness, is to have a purpose, whatever that purpose might be. You know? And so this is the ultimate confusion that we're encountering these days, because technology says to us, oh, never mind about you know, all the inefficiencies of being human, just do this and you'll be happy. Right? And the reality is it's just, it's just a you know, simulation. Uh, and we may as well enter a black mirror and, and live in there if we're going to go in that direction. <laughs> so, so, so my view is that you know, we need to really, really keep this separate and put things in its place because what really matters to us is how we relate to each other. You know, trust, relationships, understanding, uh, community. And those are the things that, that make us happy. But those are the things that are very hard to express in technology. So it's not confusion, I think, that I'm looking at. I appreciate that. I I appreciate that very thoughtful answer. Timo, what's your thought about happiness in the era of innovation explosions? Can it be defined? Can it be automated? Is it the number of toys and tech toys you have in your pocket or on your shopping list? What do you see? 
Well, I think it's a perfect question because it brings me back to uh, E.O. Wilson and uh, sociobiology. So it's exactly about bringing the sciences and the humanities back together. We're, in a lot of our discussion about technology, we tend to forget the, huma- the humanities, like uh, the philosophy, what is happiness, or ethics. And I think it's absolutely time to bring all that back together. The uh, ancient Greeks and all the philosophers since then have spent a lot of time to, trying to figure out what a a happy, uh, a good life means. And I think it's time for us all to take a step back and reread it. I like that. Frank, Diana, quickly, what does happiness mean to you in this era of innovation explosion? And then I'm going to have you give your prediction right after you finish that sentence. And I'll give you 60 seconds for the prediction. But Frank, happiness in our era, what does it mean to you? So I just want to go back to what Gerd said early on about the Bob Kennedy quote around GDP and what it measures. Uh, I think from a happiness perspective, we don't measure the right. How do you measure happiness? We, we just don't measure those things that would lead us to that kind of place where we, we know that happiness exists, right? GDP as a metric doesn't measure that. And so I, I would expect to see some changes in even our measurement system as we move forward. Okay, now officially crystal ball predictions time. Mr. Frank Diana in New Jersey, it is raining here a lot now in New York. I bet it's coming to you in a weather system very, very soon if it isn't already there. Frank, other than the weather, what do you predict about this innovation explosion? Is it going to continue? Will it continue, as they say, a pace of current where every year is the equivalent of innovation, is the equivalent of several previous years? It's just galloping and exponentially exceeding the past pace of innovation. What do you see? Let's talk about 2020, because you know that's my favorite year. It's only three years away, darn it. So, Frank, 2020, what's going to happen between now and then with this innovation explosion? 60 seconds, go. I I think we will continue to see the exponential pace that we're on. I think the sciences, uh, armed with information technologies, will continue to accelerate in terms of advancements. We'll see quantum computing really contributing to uh, the Moore's Law curve we've experienced for the last 40 years. Uh, We'll see renewable energies fuel some of our computing capacity that's required to really drive artificial intelligence to a new level. And all these things, they combine. Gerd and I like to use the term combinatorial. These combinatorial effects really kind of just bring us forward in ways that we just can't imagine. So by 2020, I would expect significant leaps and bounds in both the sciences and the technologies. I like the part about the sciences, especially because, you know, not a holiday toast goes by that somebody doesn't say, and health. If you have your health, you have everything. So that's where I'm going to tie in the sciences. Thank you. And, Frank, RSVP to the um, the prediction special. I think you're on with me on whatever date. I think it's January 4th. I need an RSVP. Thank you. Gerd Leonard, talk to me. 60 seconds. What's your prediction for 2020 and what you like to think about the future? Well, I would say that basically in the next couple of years, we're going to a place where nothing is impossible anymore, where technology is pretty much going to be able to do anything, including changing our genes, uh, changing our weather, doing all these things that we thought was impossible. And my prediction would be that this is going to be a wonderful thing for all of us. If we can find a way of saying, no, will this actually be available to everyone and will this serve the amenities that are doing it? Uh, and that is the key question that's emerging today. So it's not, I'm very excited about technology. I'm a little bit concerned about government uh, and, and finding a way to make that mutually beneficial. And so my prediction is that it's kind of an either-or scenario. But in the next five years, we're going to be inventing some pretty amazing stuff. I like that a lot. Pretty amazing. Sounds good to me. Timo Elliott, let's wrap this party up. Give you 60 seconds. What do you predict 2020? What do you see in your crystal ball? 
there is going to be massive disruptions to daily work. Many, many people are going to see their jobs modified or eliminated. But as an optimist, I believe that a whole new raft of jobs will appear. My daughter and her classmates will inevitably be doing jobs that I haven't even heard of yet. Um, the only danger is that if society doesn't use the rewards of that technology to give back to the people that have lost their jobs and make sure that their lives remain meaningful. Thank you very much. Meaningful. I like that, too. So I'm going to do a special shout-out to our three panelists, Frank, Diana, Gerd, Leonhard, and Timo Elliott. Frank, you're the one who pitched this topic, so I have a special hug for you at this holiday season. And, uh, Frank, you can always pitch directly to me for Coffee Break. Shout-out to all of our listeners. We are working on 15 series that are going to debut between January and February. We'll have one on innovative partnerships. We'll have one on the future of manufacturing. We'll have one on smart cities. Great topic, no matter where you live, you want to hear about that one and several others coming to the business channel near you. So I want to do a shout out and thank you to Michael, our engineer. Thank you for reaching out and making so many phone calls to Gerd in Rome and Timo in Kenya. And uh, Frank, thank you for being in New Jersey. How about that? And a uh, shout out to everyone. We do have uh, our prediction special series starts next Wednesday, December 7th here on Coffee Break, Wednesday, 11 a.m. Eastern. I will have, I think, 14 We'll call everybody a futurist because they're doing predictions. 14 futurists in 57 minutes. You don't want to miss that one. The week two will be December 14th, and then we'll resume with weeks three, four, five on January 4th, 11th, and 18th. Just keep listening to the Business Channel Wednesday at 11 a.m., and you will hear them all. I think we're going to have 80 predictions from 80 thought leaders in five weeks. Wow. So I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day, everyone. And here's my call to action. Oh, you know what it is automatically. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? for. Be like Frank. Be like Timo. Be like Gerd. Go out and be a game changer today. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the Coffee Break conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag pound sign S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, again next Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.